There you go. <laughs> Not silent. <laughs> just keep poking the screen. Okay. Okay. No, not every. Just every five minutes. Yes. Okay. At the end, you're just. Um, this is a, a very famous mimer of the Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Rebbe. It was said. It wasn't said. Actually, it was written. Um, as you can see, it says on the top, Shabbos Parshas Yud Shvat Tavshin Yud. Shabbos Parshas Boy Yud Shvat Tavshin Yud. Uh, it, was, it was written by the Friedrich Rebbe in <coughs> the winter of Tavshin Yud, which is 1950. And um, the Rebbe wrote four Maimarim and gave them to our Rebbe to give out at different times. The first Maimar was this one, to be given out on Yud Shvat, which was Shabbos Parshas Bay. The second, which is, the, which is a, as you can see in the top of the page, it says, Yurtzeit Kveid Imez Keinose Rabonis Atzadkanis, Maris Rivka, Nishmasa Eden, Schusi Yagen It's the Yortzite of the previous Rebbe's grandmother. Maris Rivka was the wife of the Rebbe Marash. Right? That was the first mimer. The second mimer the Rebbe gave out on, to, well, the Rebbe, again, the Friedrich Rebbe gave our Rebbe to give to the Hasidim. Right? On Yud Gimel Shvat, the 13th of Shvat, which is the Friedrich Rebbe's mother's Yortzite. Rebbe Zinstein Asara. This third mimer the Rebbe gave, the Friedrich Rebbe gave to the Rebbe to give out on Purim, which is Purim. There's going to be a class in that room in a couple, yeah, the teacher just walked in right now. Uh, Purim. And the fourth mimer the Friedrich Rebbe gave our Rebbe to give to us on Beis Nisan, which is the Friedrich Rebbe's father's yortzeh, the Rebbe Shab. Okay, those are four mimers. Each mimer had five chapters. Four times five in base ten is? 24. Twenty. Good. Even an American got it. Call it good man. That's pretty good. Americans, they teach you math. I didn't know they teach you math. Engineering degrees. Yeah, they have. Four years doing it. Well, you had to go five plus five plus five. I got it. Five. You're just be four years. <laughs> okay. That's it. I, pick, I stopped picking out Americans. That's all right. Canada won the NBA championship now, so I just want you guys to, uh, you know, there you go. Canada did something. Yay, Canada. Oh, Canada. We should say A, Canada. Because no one says O, everybody says A. C-A-N-A-D-A. That's how you spell it. Well, you're from South Africa. Come on, Hanan. You don't know what Canadians are about. But Canadians all say A at the end of every sentence. You go into the store, A? I don't know. That's just why they, they just... Americans go, huh? So Canadians go A. Or Americans go yup. Or yip. Yippers. Having a good day? Yip. Not the ones that live in the cities. Okay. 20 chapters to the mimer. Okay? Now, there are four parts to the mimer. But that, the second mimer starts with chapter 6. It's what's called a hemshech. A continue, a mimerim that build one upon the other. It's called a hemshech. A continuation of mimerim. Okay? So the second mimer starts in chapter 6. The third mimer starts in chapter 11. Okay? Etc. Those 20... Those 20 chapters became very, very important. Why? Because the previous Rebbe passed away on the day that he gave this mimer to the Rebbe to, to give to us. I mean, he gave it to the Rebbe the day before, but the day that the Rebbe gave the mimer to be learned, Yud Shvat, that, of course, is the day of the passing of the previous Rebbe. The following year on Yud Shvat, the Rebbe for, for a whole year, our Rebbe for a whole year, would not take upon himself the mantle of leadership, fused. Right? Even the morning of Yud Shvat, when the Hasidim asked the Rebbe to become Rebbe, the Rebbe said no. How did the Hasidim know that the Rebbe took upon himself to be Rebbe? Because in the Fabringen on Yud Shvat, that year, Tavshin Yud Aleph, 5711, 1951, in that Fabringen, the Rebbe nodded to someone and told them to sing the niggin that is sung before a Rebbe says a mimer. Then the Rebbe said a mimer, called Basi Lagani. And, and now, this book... Zalaf, okay, it says, Say for my mind, Basi Lagani. Well, obviously, there's not 20 chapters in this book, right? There's a lot more than that. Why? Because each subsequent year, for the next 20 years, the Rebbe explained one of the 20 chapters of the previous Rebbe's Mimer, Basi Lagani. The Rebbe would start the Mimer. Every year, the Rebbe started the Mimer with the words we're going to see at the beginning, Basi Lagani, Yechersi Kalam. The Rebbe would explain the first chapter a little bit, and then explain chapter 16, chapter 17, whatever year it happened to be. 
Okay, so that happened from Tafshin Yudalov to Tafshin Lamed, 1951 to 1970. 20 years. 1971, Tafshin Lamed Aleph, Rebbe started again. Started from the beginning. That's why this is, says Aleph on the front. There's a Basi Lagani, Sefer Maimari Basi Lagani base. What's that? That's Lamed Aleph on. That's from 1971 on. So, so the, the Rebbe said, our Rebbe said 40 plus Maimarim that were called Basi Lagani. Based on this Maimarim. This is the Maimarim the Fidik Rebbe left us with. He said, here, this is what you have to know. Okay? So, We'll learn the first five oasis of the Friedrich Rebbe's mind. We'll see part of the Rebbe's mind, a small part. Okay, Basi Lagani Achesi Kala. There is an English translation of this if someone finds um, that they want a little bit of. Uh, there's an English translation that's only English. And I think they also came out in the, I'm sure the Hasidic Heritage, Heritage series or something must yeah. have this, right? Right, but there's also, there's a gray paperback book called Basi Lagani that's only English, which, you, you know, if you, if you can stick it next to your sheet and if you, you, know, if you need the help. It's in the library, it's in a couple of places. Basi Lagani Yechesikala, a Pasuk from Shirashirim. I've come to my garden, my sister, my bride. Shlomo Melech describing Kaddish Baruch Hu, reuniting with the Jewish people. And it is, there is in the Medrash Rabbah, in its place, meaning on Shira Shirim Rabbah, in, in the book called Shira Shirim Rabbah, there's a Medrash Rabbah on all five books of the Torah. Breshis Rabbah, Shmeis Rabbah. Okay, we're going to have to share, you know what? No, I can't condense this now. We'll, we'll share, okay? A few more, a few more. We'll share a little more, okay? There's Breshis Raba, Shmeis Raba, VeYikra Raba, BeMidbar Raba, and Devarim Raba, okay? Rashi on Chumash in in in, in Sefer Breshis is mostly is mostly uh, um, taken from Breshis Raba. You should stay here. <laughs> Um, most of most of uh, or go to or go, or go to Rabbi Kaufman, if you want. Most of Rashi's commentary on on Sefer Bereishis is taken from Bereishis Rabbah, right? Rashi on Chumash, ninety five percent of Rashi on Chumash is a quote of Medrash Chazal. Rashi does not say almost anything by himself. Almost everything you read in Rashi is a quote from Chazal, either from the Gemara or from Medrash. I mean, medrashim in the Gemara or medrashim in the Sfarim that were that were codified, that, that, that were that were put together by by the Tanoim and the Amoraim with the compilation of medrashim. Breshis Rabbah is the biggest medrash Rabbah, and most of Rashi on on Bereshis comes from Breshis Rabbah. Okay, there happened to also be there's a medrash Rabbah on the five Megillas, Shirashirim, Esther, Echo, right? The the, the so Kahelas. So um, there is a there's there's a medrash rabba on that. There it's found in the back of the of the regular medrash rabba, and so on shirashim there's a shirashim rabba, and that's what the rebbe is quoting. Isab medrash rabba bim kame in its place. We are all fond of telling the story of what it says in its place because it's just interesting. The rebbe rarely says in its place. What does he mean in its place? In other words, in, on, on this pasuk in shirashim rabba, as opposed to this pasuk being quoted somewhere else. But if you look over there, there is something rather interesting. Does anybody know what's over there? If you look, it's just a pithy little piece of information that's interesting in terms of Lubavitch history. If you're not interested in Lubavitch history, so you can go to sleep for the next 42 seconds. There was, of course, a, 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 the, the, the Friedrich Rebbe had three daughters. One with her husband was killed by the Nazis, Yumach Shimon, during the war. Two made it out the older daughter and the younger daughter. The younger daughter was married to our Rebbe. The older daughter was married to someone older than our Rebbe. Rav Shmarayu called the Rashak. So there was a question after the previous Rebbe passed away, who should become Rebbe? Neither of the sons-in-law was interested. Our Rebbe wasn't interested because he just wasn't interested. The, 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 uh, the, the, the Rashag was not interested because he thought the Rebbe should be Rebbe because uh, once when they had a question, the two of them had a question, so the Rebbe said, well, why don't you ask? This is after the passing of the previous Rebbe, so 
So uh, the Rebbe asked him, well, why don't you go ask the Shver? Why don't you go ask our father-in-law? I mean, go to the gravesite and ask him. So the Roshag said to the Rebbe, does he answer you? So the Rebbe said, yes. So the Roshag said, you're a Rebbe. The Roshag was the older brother-in-law who for the next 45 years, you've, you might, you could see 40 years, you see pictures of him davening next to the Rebbe, completely and totally bottled to the Rebbe like a chosid who was not an older brother-in-law. Completely bottled, unbelievable. And, and took over the position that the Rebbe had under the previous Rebbe, so the Roshag took over that position under the Rebbe. He was in charge of the yeshivas, in charge of what's called Merkaz. So, so um, there was a question as to who should be Rebbe. It happens to be interesting. If you look over there in the Medrash, it happens to be who is the author of this Medrash. And Hasidim like to say that the Friedrich Rebbe was hinting at this. Who knows? We don't know these things, but it's fun to say anyway. But we don't know whether we're right. I mean, who knows? But oh, if you look over there, it happens to be very interesting because the author of this statement in the Medrash, it says, Amr Rabbi Menachem Chasne. Rabbi Menachem, his son-in-law, says, so that's rather interesting. We, we get a kick out of it. Whether it means anything, who knows? This means something we know. That's why we're spending more time here than telling that story. But the Isab Medrash Rabbi Bim Kame in its place. On sure, sure. Lagan Ainksiv Khan. It does not say here, I come to a garden. Ella Lagani to my garden. Lignuni. An Aramaic word which is a play on the word Gani, Lignuni, to my resting place. Lamakam Shahaya Ikare Betchilo, to the place that was my essential pl- place originally. De Ikershina, that the essence of the divine presence, meaning the most powerful revelation of godliness, was Betachtoinim, I'd say, in the lower realms it was. And then the Medrash goes on and explains how it left the lower realms. Okay, but first, before we, go, before we go any further, let's try to understand the Medrash. The Medrash is based on the fact that there's a word in the Pasuk that could theoretically be another word. Right? But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say Basi Lagan. It says Basi Lagani. My garden. To my resting place. To the place where I was originally. That the essence of divine presence is in the lower realms. And then the Rebbe is going to explain how through the negative activity of a number of generations of the world, godliness was pushed out of the world. Meaning it became harder and harder to be sensitive to godliness in the world. God is here. The question is how easy or hard is it to be sensitive to him? We'll see that in a minute. Okay. So what difference does it make whether it says Gan or Gani? What's the Medrash saying? What's bothering the Medrash and how does it solve that problem? I came to my garden. What does that mean? What does that teach according to the Medrash? Well, it says it right here. We just read it. That what? How would you translate the words now according to the Medrash? Let's read it again. It doesn't say Lagan. Lagani, my garden. to my resting place. to the place that was my original place. that the essence of divine presence was in the lower realms. Okay, so now how would you translate the Pasik Basi Lagani into English? I'm coming back. Oh, beautiful. I'm coming back to my garden, right? It doesn't say I'm coming to my garden. It says I'm coming. I mean, it does say that. But because it says Gani and not Gan, it's translated as I'm coming back to where I was. Oh, so why would that make a difference, Gani as opposed to Gan? Fairly simple, once you think about it. Means I've been there before. Oh, well, okay, you've been there before. Why might you have been there before? Because it's here. Because it's yours. Right? If I come to your house, it's reasonable to say, I'm coming to your house. If I come to my house, what would I say? I'm coming home, back to my house. Right? I mean, I don't come to my house, I come back to my house. Oh, so since it's Gani, since it's my garden, therefore, where theoretically should I be? There, in my garden, right? I mean, that's where we usually hang out, in your own house. Okay. The fact that I left and came back, so that I've come back, that's a chiddush. The fact that I left is, is interesting. I mean, why did I leave? 
Why aren't I here? Now, Kaddish Baruch doesn't have to go shopping. Okay. So I, I've left and I've come back. That's shot in the Pasuk based on that one little letter, Yud. If it said Basi Legan, I would understand that, that I'm coming to my garden, to a garden for the first time. Basi Legani, I'm coming back to my garden. Okay. Originally I was here and now I'm coming back. Okay, well, what happened? So let's see. Vayadechet. Eitzadas, through the hate of Eitzadas, the tree of knowledge, Gan Eden, Nistalka Hashchina. Nistalak means it went up. It went out, it went up, it was elevated. Hashchina, Mi'aretz Lerakiyah. The Shechina, the divine presence, meaning godly revelation, left the world and was elevated up to a certain level of Shemaim, a certain level of metaphysical reality. There are seven levels of Rakiyah. Right, which, don't worry about how that relates to different spheres and different worlds, etc. There's seven levels of Rakia, and we, we pay heed to that on Yom Kippur. Right? At the end of Yom Kippur, we say Hashem Hu Elohim seven times, the idea of a Kaddish Baruch Hu having revealed himself in the world in a very powerful way on Yom Kippur, such that most of us feel much more connected to spiritual, godly reality on Yom Kippur than any other day, because the cosmic reality is completely different. That ends at the end of the day. And so we say, Hashem Elohim, Hashem Elohim, Hashem Elohim, Hashem as Kaddish Baruch Hu, so to speak, receding back out of the world to a certain degree. Now, what does that mean? A Kaddish Baruch was in the world, out of the world? The Kaddish Baruch was always in the world because the world can't exist if the Kaddish Baruch was not here because he's existence. And it's like imagining light shining off the page of your book if, if the light bulb disappeared. If the light bulb disappears, there's no light on your book because the light on your book is completely connected to its source. So all of reality is completely and totally connected to its source in its creator, in a Kaddish Baruch Hu. That's what existence is. A Kaddish Baruch Hu is not like you and I creating a teapot. That once I create the teapot so then I can disappear, the teapot still exists. It's not how creation works. Creation works with a constant input of godly energy causing that to exist. And that's why we use the mushal, we use the parable of light to relate to godly energy surging into the world and giving the world vitality. Because light is something that if it's not connected to its source, it ceases to exist. Right. We talked about this in... Right. There's now no light on that page. It's not that I captured the light on that page. A caveman, in terms of ideas of reality, Dafki lives in a cave. He just might be like a caveman in terms of his understanding of reality. So that person might think, oh, you know, it's dark in my room and I'd like to read this in my room. If I just capture the light on the page, I'll take it to my room and when I open it, the light will still be on the page and I'll be able to read it. Right? Now, that's a caveman in terms of understanding how physics works. Okay, well, you can be like that in terms of metaphysics also, thinking that reality is separate from its source, that it can be separated from that which brought it into reality and still continue to exist. In a certain state of bringing one thing into being, that does exist. That's called yesh to yesh, taking clay and turning it into a teapot. So there's no question that the, the, the person who molded the clay into the teapot doesn't have to exist in order for the teapot to continue existing. But he doesn't bring the clay into existence. All he did was change the form of the clay from a piece of clay to a teapot. And that's called bria yesh mi yesh, creating something from something. So in creation of something from something, there's no need whatsoever for the energy of the creator to remain in the created thing. Its nature is it'll hold that form. That's the nature of clay. That's why we use clay to make teapots and not water. Water won't work very well. Ice will work if you live in Ottawa in the winter. Right? Just, you know, keep it outside all day and it'll, you know, they make... They made, I think, an ice hotel somewhere in Canada that, that, that you know, just stayed frozen the whole winter. There were rooms. There were, you could, like, walk up the stairs of ice and go into your room of ice. Like, it was a huge igloo, right? Okay, so people paid money for this. People in North America will pay money for anything. Right? So, okay, you know, figure, okay, they'll do this. There's just a lot of it around, so people will use it for all sorts of things. It's fun. It wouldn't work so well in Eretz Yisrael. First of all, it's a bunch of Jews. They'd never pay money for it. And second of all, the thing would melt rather quickly, so it wouldn't work. Right? But, but you, could, you can form H2O. You can form H2O to maintain its form if it's in the form called ice, except it doesn't usually keep that form for very long. Okay. But clay does, because that's the nature of clay. 
existence itself, we don't call the creation of the world yesh miyesh, we call it yesh miyayin, the creation of something from nothing, the creation of physical reality from metaphysical reality. So in order to maintain that state, there has to be a constant input of the energy that changed that from one state to another. Right? Okay. Like, you know, you implanting some form on water, you'd have to stay there and hold it. What's the muscle brought by the Alter Rebbe in Shayyukad Vemuna, which is what we're learning every day now in daily Tanya? Right? Like the wind that through Kriyas Yamsuf that formed walls of water, as long as the wind was blowing, so then the waters would maintain that unnatural form and, and stay in that unnatural state of being walls. Right? There were 12, what, 12 walls, 13 walls. Right? Each tribe had its own lane, right? And in between each tribe at Kriyas Yamsuf, there was a wall of water. So the tribe could see through the walls of water. They'd see fish, but they'd also see through to another tribe on each side. They walked through these 12 lanes of water, right? It wasn't tides. That doesn't work with tides, right? So, so that, well, how did those walls stay up? So the Torah says explicitly there was a strong easterly wind that blew the water apart, so to speak. As long as that wind was blowing, the water maintained its unnatural state. As soon as that wind stopped, the water referred, reverted back to its natural state, Okay. And the Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe brings that as a marshal to understand the existence of the world. The natural state of existence is not physical. In order for that existence to maintain its physical, limited state, because God's not physical, in order for that existence to maintain its limited physical state, there has to be a constant input of the energy that causes it to be coming to that state originally. Because it's a somewhat miraculous, unnatural state of reality. Because reality for an, for an infinite amount of non-time was not physical. God's not physical. How does a Kaddish Baruch bring about this physical reality? Well, we just finished, a, well, we didn't finish, but we're you know, almost through a mimer that, that explained that to us quite, quite clearly. Okay. So what happened by Eitchet Eitzadas? God didn't disappear from the world. God is here. There is no place devoid of him because he's existence. Okay. But the world became a place where it was less easy or harder to be sensitive to godly reality. Right? Just like now. There are places where it's easier to be sensitive to godly reality, and there are places where it's harder to be sensitive to godly reality. Most people find walking around Yerushalayim affects their consciousness a little bit more than walking around Peoria, Illinois, relative to godly sensitivity. They feel more sensitive to godly spiritual reality here than they do in, you know, wherever they happen to spend most of their time. Why? Well, because there's a greater revelation of God in Eretz Yisrael than there is in the rest of the world. Just like there's a greater revelation of godliness on Shabbos than there is the rest of the day of the week. That's why people you know, who, who appreciate Shabbos and try to connect to the holiness of it, you cannot know there's such a thing, right? But were you to be aware of such a thing, so most people who are aware of it find that they think about reality slightly differently on Shabbos and they don't think about checking their email or their WhatsApps the first thing they, when they get up in the morning. It's not what they think about on a Shabbos morning. It might be what they think about on a Tuesday morning, but it's not what they're thinking about it's when they get up on Shabbos. It's not part of their conscious reality because Shabbos is different. Once Shabbos ends and they crash, go see how people act on Metzi Shabbos. They crash back into the world, and it can often be a rather, uh, rather a violent crash. You don't want it to be violent, go sit in a Malava Malka and forbring a little and it'll be less violent, but it, it looks pretty violent if you walk around these parts, right? <laughs> people crash big time, right? Because they look like people who somehow paid heed to Shabbos a few hours ago, but they look a long way away from that consciousness yeah. now, right? But Shabbos is different, Yom Kippur is different. Yom Kippur is a day where it's easier to be sensitive to a Kaddish Baruch I don't think there's, it, I mean, it, it, well, I don't think what I think is irrelevant. There basically is no such thing as an affiliated Jew who doesn't feel more connected to their Jewishness on Yom Kippur than on any other day of the year. If they're what's called religious, so they're in shul davening better than they daven any other day. If they're not what's called religious, they're in shul davening the only day of the year. 
Why? Because there's a cosmic energy that moves the Jew to get connected to something that's very real. They just, you know, might not necessarily be part of their consciousness most of the time, but it is then. Why? It's different. Holier day. Easier to be sensitive to God on Yom Kippur than on any other day of the year. Just the way it is. And we all experience that. So why doesn't the text explicitly state that? So that if the essence of Kash Baruch Hu is inherent in the universe, um, then we know that it didn't it didn't go anywhere. But uh, you just said that it's saying it that it's, a seven, it's the sensitivity that should. Does that? I mean, it's like any text. It expects you to understand the way it talks. A medical text is not going to explain things in a way that a layman will understand. It'll explain things in a way that someone who understands how that text works will understand. All right, so there'll be all sorts of information that the doctor will understand from a few lines in a medical textbook that you and I will look at and go, I don't know what this is talking about. But there's all sorts of knowledge behind it that'll help you understand, like, you know, like just about any serious book. So that's what, you know, what's going on here. That's what it means. When we talk about revelation of God, we mean easier or harder to be sensitive to God. Sometimes revelation is so clear that you have to be an absolute dolt not to be there. I mean, if you're standing at Matan Tara and you don't see God, there's something wrong with you. Everybody saw it. Okay. How sensitive to that am I as I'm walking around the world now? Well, that this, this whole mimer is all about developing that consciousness and that sensitivity. That's exactly what the Rebbe talks about in his mind. Developing a sensitivity to the godliness all around us. Meaning be sensitive to the fact some people relate to this world as a desert. They just focus on the concealment and the hiddenness and the darkness. and So that's there. There's no question. Interesting enough, how does this mimer refer to this world? A garden. A garden. We just saw it in the Amium. When was it? Last week in the Amium? It's either a garden... Or uh, it's a garden of godliness, or a garden of ginat egos. It can be a garden of of wrongdoing, a place of tremendous concealment. Depends on what I see with my eyes. We all know that anybody can, you know, two people can look at the same event and see it in a completely different way. Right? Let's see what happened. What happened in the chetei tzedas? Nistalka Godliness left this world, and so after the destruction of Gan Eden, which it must be pointed out, we've talked about it, and I apologize for those people who've heard it so many times, but it's something that we have to understand very, very clearly. The, the destruction of Gan Eden happened on the sixth day of creation. It's part of the creation of the world. It's not part of the history of the world. There's a difference between those two, those two realities. It's not that the Abishai created the world, finished, and then humans destroyed it. No. Part and parcel of the creation of the world was the creation of a perfect reality of godly revelation, which is what the world can and will look like when we reach our potential. It's called Mashiach. But that situation was destroyed within the context of the creation of the world. Because when HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, I want to be revealed in the lower realms, he didn't, as we'll see very clearly here, he did not say, I want to be revealed in the lower realms. He said, I want the lower realms to reveal me. I want there to be a reality called concealment, and in that concealment, I want people in that concealment to work hard and fight through the veil and the fog and find me there. Like we talked about yesterday in our unofficial shoot, which was a lot of fun because we broke the rules. I love breaking the rules. We didn't really break the rules, but you know, there wasn't a rule, and we did it anyway, which is great. Hananya and I were discussing the fact that I think Shai, you also there, right? M- most of us wouldn't be here if we didn't like breaking rules. Because the rules are we're not supposed to be doing what we're doing now. The rules are we're supposed to figure out how to make a living. Those are the rules. And we decided we're going to break those rules for a while. <laughs> it's great breaking rules. I love breaking rules. Ben knows what I mean. I'd have a Canuck jersey on now if I didn't break rules. Bunch of losers. I can't win anything. You know? Come on, man. Ben, get together. I don't even like that. Oh. <laughs> 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 oh, you like the Canadians? They also haven't won for a while. <laughs> 
Cain, what did Cain do? Killed, killed his brother, right? That was the second level that pushed godliness out of the world. The Enosh, what did Enosh do? A little less well known. It's in the Torah. Didn't kill, didn't kill anybody. All right, he was the first Ayyad of Adazar. He's the first idol worshiper. Right? The first one to decide that maybe since God seems to use intermediaries to give us all sorts of things, maybe I should worship the intermediaries as opposed to him. Not that he wasn't worshiping God through the intermediaries. Right? A machlek is the Rambam and the Ramban, whether it was an intellectual mistake, that's the, Ram, the Rambam. doesn't mean it's any less, but he, you know, he, he had the right idea, he just went about it the wrong way. Right? Or the Ramban says, no, that it was actually you know, much worse. It's just... Uh, uh, rebellion. Okay, but however we understand what Enosh did, Enosh was the first Oyved of Erezar, the first idol worshiper, the first one who decided that it might be reasonable to connect to the intermediary as opposed to the source. That's in the Persian? Well, it talks about Enosh. Va'al yedechet kayin ve'enosh, nistalka shechina, the shechina elevated, mirakia aleph, labes ve'gimel. And afterwards, Bador HaMabul, the people of the flood, just ten generations later, Nistalka Mirakia Gimel Adalid. Right? Ten generations after Adam is Neyach. Medrash Rabbah, as there is in Medrash Rabbah. Now let's just fill in, because we did, we, did, uh, <coughs> we did four. The next are Dor HaFloga, the people of the Tower of Babel. Zdoim, the people of Zdoim, who we meet Right, in Parsha's uh, Vieira, where they don't seem to be such nice people who, you know, won't let you invite a guest to your house, etc., etc., to the people of Sedoim. Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And the Mitzrim, the Egyptians, not the Egyptians of Meshavenu, the Egyptians at the time of Avram Avinu. I mean, up until the time of Avram Avinu, okay, who were also pretty nasty people. When Avram went to Mitzrayim, what did he have to do? Hide his wife. Hide his, his wife in a box. It says a lot about that society, doesn't it? Right? <laughs> So it took a really long time to It took 20 generations to push godliness out of the world. Seven, gener- seven, seven different realities of negative, negativity pushing godliness out of the world. Okay? Say there? Now, the Rebbe brings a, a, a very interesting medrash. And the medrash himself is based, it's, a, it's the same style of medrash that we just saw, Ein Ksivkan. It doesn't, it doesn't say A, rather it says B. And from the fact that it doesn't say A and says B, we learn something. Al-Ukadi'isaba like it says in the medrash Rabba, fifth line, this is Breshis Rabba. Al-Pasek, on the Pasek, V'yishma eskol havayalokim mishalech began. And he heard the voice of Hashem walking in the garden. Who's he? Who would hear the voice of God walking in the garden in Bereshis? Adam. Adam, right? Adam, Adam Arishan, right? He just ate lunch, and, uh, and he's got a problem because uh, things are starting to change, right? So he heard a Kaddish Baruch walking in the garden. Oh, so, okay, what's Pshad? He heard a Kaddish Baruch walking in the garden. Then the Kaddish Baruch says, what did you do? Right, well, she did it. Okay, say it. Oh, so now, that word mit halech, First word on the line is really a strange word because what should it say? Holech or mehalech. What's mitalech? Grammatically, what's mitalech for you, ulpanistim? Reflexive. Reflexive, thank you. Yes. Fle- reflexive. How do you know that? Did you do ulpan? Well, you just know that stuff. Reflexive, right? What does reflexive mean? Ani mitlabesh. I am dressing myself, meaning I'm getting dressed, right? Ani mit pa'er, ani lo mit pa'er. He mit pa'eret. She is beautifying herself. That means she's putting on makeup. Right? Okay? Psaida? Hit pa'al. Okay? Lil bosh is to wear. Lahal bish is causative to dress. You dress your child. Ani malbishoto. I'm dressing him. He can't do that himself. I'm putting on his clothes. Okay, on him, not on me. If I put my clothes on me, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a sweater. Or animitla beish sweater. I am, I dressed myself in a sweater. Hit pa'al. So why is it, what, what's reflexive walking? 
mitalech begun. God's reflexively walking in the garden. What does that mean? Amar Rabbi Abba. In the Medrash it says, Mahalech Engsivkan. It doesn't say God is walking in the garden. Ella Misalech. It's exactly the same form as the Medrash we saw, Legan Engsivkan. We're going to see another one also later. <coughs> it doesn't mean all Medrashim are like that, but these three are. So why does it say Mithalech and not Mihalech? And you see how Medrash learns interesting information out of the way the Torah is written. Torah Balpeh, the oral law, explains Torah Bechsav, the written law. Without the oral law, you wouldn't have a clue what the written law means. Amar Rabbi Abba, Mahalech Engsivkan Elamishalech. That says an amazing thing. Kofitz v'ozil, jumping and going. Kofitz v'ozil, jumping and going. What's that? What, what's he hear? He heard. He heard God walking in the garden. What does it really mean, according to this medrash? He heard God jumping. Jumping. Wait, what's that? God jumps. What, what does that mean? Yeah. Okay. Right. This is a this is a proof that God's not a white man, right? Because white guys can't jump. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All they can do is shoot three pointers from the you know, but they can't jump. Okay, fine. <laughs> what does it mean, jumping and going? What does that mean? Did you bring that up because of the Toronto Raptors? No, I already brought up the Toronto Raptors. I, look, I, you have to understand something. I feel bad saying this in a Hasidic class. We're talking about God. I grew up in a place called Vancouver. There's a number of things that Vancouver has. It has unbelievably beautiful mountains, snow, sea. It's, it's, it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. It also has an incredible hate for everything Toronto. But, yeah, meaning... It doesn't matter who wins the Stanley Cup as long as the Toronto Maple Leafs don't. <laughs> right? Well, now you include the Boston Bruins in that. Right? But, but the, 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 the Toronto Raptors happened to have overcome all of that and united the whole place. There were tens of thousands of people in the street. And in Montreal, they all got together to watch the Toronto Raptors. Now, that's like someone in Boston watching the Yankees, you know, going out and cheering the Yankees. I mean, it's just... Like a Mets fan cheering the Yankees, I, I know who I'm talking to, right? So this is—it's it's like it, it transcended everything Canadian because, I mean, he'll tell you Canadians hate Toronto unless you live there because they really are just insufferable. My aunt asked my mother. My mother and father grew up in Toronto. They left. They moved to Vancouver in 1946. They—they're. Uh, father passed away, but their 73rd wedding anniversary, they made it to their 72nd wedding anniversary together, their 73rd is soon, right, so, so, uh, and it went, went about 40 years after they moved there, my aunt from Toronto asked my mother, well, now that the kids have grown up, you'll probably move back to Toronto, right? It's like, why would you want to live anywhere else? They have that mentality. They make New York look expansive. You know? They define the word provincial, so it, it annoys all the rest of us. But there wasn't one guy in the team from Toronto, so no one cared. <laughs> okay. Kofitz v'azil, no? Jumping and going, jumping and going. What's shot in the Medrash? Where is he? He's, he is God, right? So where is he jumping? Oh, beautiful. He's jumping out of the world, meaning, so to speak, what's reflexive walking? So to speak, a Kaddish Baruch is walking back towards himself in the image of God up there and us down here, even though that's not true, but okay, that's our image. God is above, we're below. Right? Okay, so, so to speak, a Kaddish Baruch is leaving the garden. It doesn't mean that he heard God walking in the garden. He heard God leaving the garden, and that's why he was so afraid. It's such an unbelievable shot in the Pusik. Because he was completely, right? Adam Arishan is a person who is intuitively in tune with everything godly. And what's hard to understand about the whole story is how they did anything against the will of God. Because naturally they were, they were, they were wired to only do that which was in, in concert with God's will. So the whole idea of them doing an Avera is, is, is impossible to understand. And all of the Mepharshim try to understand how it is they did this. And there's no good answer. There is no good answer, because there is no good answer. It's beyond our understanding. Because it was obviously orchestrated by a Kodesh Baruch that they do this. Why? Well, it's part of the creation of the world. 
that the world should be created again, as we said earlier, in this perfect state, and that state should be destroyed, interestingly enough, by the inability to do one thing. They had one mitzvah, and they couldn't do it. How do we fix it? Mitzvahs. Doing those things that they couldn't do. Okay. That's interesting. But so what did he hear? So why was he afraid of, of Kaddish Baruch Hu? He was someone who was completely and totally in tune with godliness and was aware of God's presence in absolutely everything. Oh, because he wasn't afraid of God's presence. He was afraid of God's lack of presence. What did we do? What have we done? Because he was aware of the metaphysical change that came about. Neighbor said, no, Taka, what did you do? To enter into some sort of conversation. God knew what he did. He was there. Vaakarkach. Oh, so what happened afterwards? Amdu Shivat Sadiqim. Then seven Sadiqim stood. Seven generations of tzaddikim came and brought godliness back into the world. And that's what Shlema Melech is referring to. Come back to my garden. Seven generations of tzaddikim bringing godliness back. So, of course, who's the first? No. Hmm? No. Avram. Avram. Avinu. Noach was part of the generation pushing God out of the world. Not he himself, but his generation. Um... Uh, Avram came came before God was completely pushed out. So was it? Oh, why? Right. Stayed in midstream that that generation. Those the the, the 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 it was around that time. It was Dafka then that that whole process was completed. Right. The stayed in the midstream are, 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 are the same time as Avram Avinu. So the job had been completed uh, by the time Avram That's exactly why he showed up when he showed up. The first 2,000, how do Chazal describe the 6,000 years of the world's history before the 1,000 years of Yemes Mashiach? 2,000 years of Toyu, 2,000 years of chaos, 2,000 years of terror, and 2,000 years of Mashiach. Right? That's how Chazal described the 6,000, and then ultimately the 7th millennium, the, the Yem Shikula Shabbos. The Shabbos millennium. Okay, what's the 2,000 years of Toyu, chaos? The 2,000 years until the birth of Avram Avinu. When was Avram Avinu born? What year? It's an easy year for anybody who lives now to remember. 1948, right? So most people know 1948 in the Gregorian calendar corresponding to the state of Israel or my sister Lynn's birthday, right? But, uh, but 1948 was when Avram was born, right? After 2,000 years of chaos, Avram Avinu came into the world. Then 2,000 years of terror, right? Avram Avinu began the process of preparing the world for the giving of the Torah in the year 2448, right? And ultimately, that was the, the, the time of Torah, the next 2,000 years, the revelation of Torah and, and bringing about all the reality the Torah describes, the temples in Yerushalayim, etc., etc., right? And then what? 2,000 years of Mashiach. Well, what happened at the end of the 2,000 years of Torah? The destruction of the second temple, which set the stage for the ultimate coming of Mashiach, which is the building of the third temple, which is prophesied at the time of the first temple by Yechezkel. Already Yechezkel and Novi in the time of the first temple is prophesying the building of the third in, in the days of Mashiach. I mean, the second one was obviously very important, but it was clearly just a bridge from one state to another. And that, when did, when did the second temple, the second temple was destroyed in, in the approximately the year 4000. And then the next 2000 years are the 2000 years of Mashiach, as I'll say. Right? Meaning, preparing the world for the coming Mashiach, that should happen, So what happened with these seven tzaddikim? Let's see, and we'll stop. Avram Zohar, Avram merited, v'hered as a shechina mi rekiah zayin levav. Avram brought shechina down from the seventh level to the sixth. Yitzchok mi vav and Yitzhak from six to five. Meaning, obviously this is much more sophisticated than simply talking about you know, pulling on a string. Meaning bringing about different aspects of godly revelation that brought about a more serious sensitivity godliness in the world. Avram in his way, Yitzhak in his way. Yaakov obviously is the next step. Who's after Yaakov? Well, that becomes more difficult, right? Because there's a few choices. It's only one choice after Avram, it's only one choice after, after Yitzchak, but there's a lot of choices after, after Yaakov, 
most people assume it's yes. Yosef. That's what most people assume. But of course, like you know, everything in Torah, it's the wrong assumption. Right? It's a good assumption. Levi, the Shevet Levi. The next four generations are Levi, Kahas, Amram, and Moshe. Moshe is the seventh. Okay, Avram Yitzchak Yaakov, Levi, son of Yaakov, Kahas, son of Levi, Amram, son of Kahas, father of Moshe Rabbeinu. Right? Who was in charge of the Who was in charge of the Jewish community in Mitzrayim before Moshe Rabbeinu showed up? Amram. How do you know? The, uh, does it, isn't there the, the, the story about him splitting with his wife? Exactly, right? Very well. Well said, right? He, he, he divorced his wife because they didn't want to have children so the power wouldn't kill them, right? And so everybody divorced their wife. So what did his daughter Miriam say to him? You're worse than Paro. Paro's only killing the boys. You're killing all the children. So what did he do? So he remarried. And they had Maisha, right? Oh, and everybody remarried. I mean, Amram was the leader of the Jewish people at that point, right? It came through Levi. Levi, Kahas, Amram, and then he had a rather illustrious son named Meish Rabbeinu. He wasn't called Rabbeinu at his birth. <laughs> he wasn't called Meish at his birth either. Yeah. What was he called at his birth? Birth? No. no he certainly wasn't called Moses. Right? <laughs> Moses, is a, Moses is a middle linebacker. Right? Weren't, didn't we go by like seven different names or something? No, that was Yisra. Yosela. He's Meish Rabbeinu, no? Don't make it up. If you don't know, just be quiet. It's perfectly good. It's perfectly reasonable not to know, but to take something holy and turn it into silliness is not a good idea. What's his name? If you don't know his name, that's okay. I'm going to tell you his name. Now you'll know it. And when I ask you in two weeks, you'll forget it again, and I'll tell you again. Right? His name was Tuvia. Why? What did they see? What does it say in the Torah? What was the house full of? when the Light, which was Taif. Tuvia, that was his name. Don't tell my brother. His name is Tuvia. He, he takes it uh, very seriously that Moshe Rabbeinu was named Tuvia. Ad, until Kim Mesha. How did he get the name Mesha? Who gave him the name Mesha? That's Paro, Bissia, right? Bissia, the, the daughter of Paro, gave him the name Mesha. Kimina Mayim Mishisiu, from the water I drew him. That was his name. It's his name. He's not called anything else in the Torah, interestingly enough. Right? But his name was given by, by the daughter of Paro. Who, of course, was a very holy lady and came left Mitzrayim with the Yidden. Ad ki Meisha shehu hashvi until Meisha, and he's the seventh. It's the seventh generation from Avram. Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Levi, Kahas, Amram, Meisha. Right? Meisha was born in the year 2368. 420 years after Avram Avinu. He's the seventh generation, which means, interestingly enough, he's the 26th generation of the world. Avram Avinu is the 20th Adam to Noach is 10 generations. Those 10 generations are chronicled in Parshas Bereshis. Noach to Avram are 10 generations. Those 10 generations are chronicled in, in Parshas Noach. I mean, they're, 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 all the names are given in Parshas Noach. Who gave birth to who, to who, to who, to who, until you end up with Avram. And, and from Avram until Meish is, is another seven generations, which means 20 and seven generations, obviously only 26, not 27, that would be the eighth. 26, which is, I mean, a hint to the fact that it, in that generation there'll be a revelation of Shemavaya, Yudke Vavke, which is Gematria 26, the generation of the revelation of that name of God. Because that's what Meish is all about, that revelation. <coughs> that's what Torah is all about. Adki Meish, Shuhu Hashvi, He's the seventh. V'kol hashvin chavivin. And all sevenths are dear, the Friedrich Rebbe says. Our Rebbe spends a good deal of time in his first mimer. Yud Aleph Shvat, Tavshin Yud Aleph. The 11th day of Shvat in the year Tavshin Yud Aleph, 1951. Explaining that parenthetical statement because we, of course, are the seventh generation from the Alter Rebbe. And the Rebbe explains that at length. You want to see it, it's very, very interesting. Until Moshe, Shehua Shvi, that he's the seventh, and all sevenths are dear, Haridu Lamata Ba'aretz, Haridoi, brought him down into the world. How did Moshe bring godliness into the world? What did Moshe do to bring about a very powerful revelation of godliness in the world? Okay, he didn't exactly write the Torah, that's true, but there's something he did that's even more a function of bringing about godly revelation, which he's not given enough credit for. Yes, he got the Torah, that's pretty good. If you could write that on your CV, you'd be doing well. But there's even more. He did that too, that's also true. 
He built the Mishkan in the desert, right? I mean, was, I mean, it's true that we all were involved, but I mean, ultimately, Moshe was the one who was most powerfully involved in building the Mishkan. What's the Mishkan? An ongoing revelation of godliness in space, in the most amazing way. The Ramban describes the Mishkan as an, as an ongoing Matan Torah experience, meaning the revelation of Matan Torah is constant in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Kedush HaGadoshim, in the Holy of Holies. Created a space in Eilam Atma. Obviously, only a Kodesh Baruch can do this, but Moshe was the vehicle to bring this about. A, a, a place, a, a, a place in space that is absolutely a place of revelation. Constantly. Beis HaMikdash. Amazing. So Mesha brought godliness into the world in the most concrete way, so to speak. And that's the seventh generation. The essential revelation of godliness was in the base of Mikdash. Now, in Mesha's time, of course, the Mishkan in the desert, and then it turned, became the base of Mikdash in the times of David Melech. 450 years later, I mean, after we got into Eretz Yisrael. Dixiv, as it says, Vaasuli Mikdash, they should make for me a Mikdash, Vishakanti Basekham, and I will dwell in them. Again, same idea that we've seen twice. This is not a Medrash, this is the Frida Garebi talking. It doesn't say they should make for me a Mikdash. This is a Pasik from Parsha's Truma. Right? God says to Mesh Rabbeinu, Asuli Mikdash, they should make for me a Mikdash, Vishakanti Basekham, and I will dwell amongst them. So it doesn't say, it doesn't say I will dwell in it. Make me a mikdash and I'll dwell in it. It doesn't say that. It says make, they should make me a mikdash and I will dwell in them. It doesn't say I'll dwell in it. Make me a house and I'll live in it. No. Amongst them, in them. In each and every one. And that's what this mime is all about. The Aveda Vaasuli Mikdash in order to bring about godly consciousness in each and every one of us. That every single one of us can, be, can become someone sensitive to God's presence. How? Well, it's, I going to explain at length. Vazel, and this is Tzadikim Yishu Aretz V'yishkinu Ladele. We'll see that tomorrow. Okay. I'll make some more copies. Let's write this shit. Thank <laughs> you.